You're listening to Within Tolerance, a podcast for machinists by machinists. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson from Protium Machining. And this week, I am joined by Noah Graff. Welcome, Noah. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. It's nice to be on somebody else's show as opposed to just interviewing other people. Yeah. Well, so for those who maybe don't listen to your show or know who you are, who are you? What do you do? And all that good stuff. Well, I'm Noah Graff. I am a used machine tool dealer, work in a family business for that. And uh, we also have a website blog about the precision machining industry. And about four years ago, I started a podcast called Swarfcast. That's S-W-A-R-F-C-A-S-T. It's, uh, it's about precision machining, turned parts. I have more of a background in screw machines, multi-spindle screw machines and Swiss screw machines. But we touch on all kinds of things, some of the things that are similar to this podcast. So Yeah, actually, I'm, I found your podcast through a past guest of this podcast, Dan Rudolph, and he was on there Dan a Rudolph. couple times. And uh, yeah, it, 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 I've listened to a handful of them. And I, Such I really a cool him. guy, Dan Rudolph. Right. Cool guy. Yeah, yeah, he, he is. He's wonderful. Well, let's get into your backstory then. How did you get to doing all these things, you know, use machinery dealer and podcasts and all that? Where did this all start? Nepotism. Uh, <laughs> my my used to be more more self-conscious about that, but eventually you just, you know, you become more comfortable with yourself. Uh, my grandfather started Graf Pinkard in 1941, started buying and selling used machinery and he worked with his father doing scrap metal for a minute and then he he met some used machinery dealers in his exploits and he saw they were just like making tons of money and he was like this seems like a much better business and started going around the country buying like old mills and stuff and and he had a a book, he found this book called the Emmerman Catalog that had um, prices of machines, uh, you know, from a few years before, I think. And then he used that as a guide for when he was trying to price machines. And, you know, he worked in the business a while. He actually, then in World War II, he made parts for World War II on Davenport's, Davenport screw machines. And, and then later my father and my uncle went into the business. My uncle doesn't work with us anymore. He's got his own business. And then I was about 24, 25. I was getting out of college. I'd lived in Italy a bit, a little bit, uh, after college. And then, uh, I was, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I was a, a film major in college and my dad, he was a journalism major in college and he had started about uh, maybe four or five years before he had started a print magazine about machining called Today's Machining World. Right. And when we spoke, I mean, I, I'd seen that years and years ago when it was still print. Wow. I, I, like I, I know the the font and everything. Like I've seen the hard copy, but now it's strictly online, right? Yeah. Actually, he was totally ahead of his time. Like when he came up with it, 
in 2000, he's like, I think, you know, this, let, let's just make this online. Let's just, you know, it's become like an online zine and maybe we'll sell out or something. And, <laughs> and then, you know, he was just a little too ahead of his time. So he decided to make it into a print magazine, which was, you know, very involved. And, and then he, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. He tried to lure me in to, I don't know, lure me in, but, you know, he gave me an opportunity. He said, look, why don't you come in and, you know, we'll do interviews with, with people and you can videotape them and broadband's coming and we'll put it online. And this is like 2005 and it's just a little too early. Okay. And, but, you know, I did and I made training videos for working with screw machines. And, and then I started editing uh, and writing for the magazine and getting more and more involved in that. And I did that for a few years. And then, uh, 2011 came, print was dead, and we decided, let's just take it online. Let's just, you know, we'll do, mainly do blogs. We do two blogs a week. It's generally one blog he writes, and then I either write a blog or do a podcast. And then we have, you know, industry news and other stuff like that, other videos, et cetera. So then in 2011, I started going into the machinery business, which I like to call the treasure hunting business. You know, it was the little, I don't mix feelings about it. Wasn't sure if it was the right thing. You know, I always considered myself sort of a media person. And, you know, I was talking with somebody about it and they said, you know, because I, I, I've always been making some documentaries on the side too. And the last documentary I made was this documentary about uh, all the Chicago locations of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And <laughs> like I went to every location from like the Sears Tower to like all the backyards he goes to, to, you know, like where the whole dancing scene is. We got a Ferrari and went around the city. And the whole thing was this, this like hunt to try to figure out where everything is because you know you sort of have ideas but you know and this guy is like well you know it sounds like you're a treasure hunter you know you 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 like finding things and discovering things and you know the used machinery business it's it's like the treasure hunting it's a big treasure hunt you go all over the world to find all kinds of stuff i've gotten to go to Europe, Asia, South America, all kinds of crazy places in the United States to find machines. And, you know, it's, you can characterize the business as buying old greasy crap that people don't want and then selling it to somebody else or fixing it up. But, or you can see it in a little bit more romantic light (laughs) you're finding interesting stuff that people don't exactly know what it's worth. There's a term. Are you familiar with the term sexy ugly? No, I don't think so. It's like people, it's sort of a pop cultural term. People, you know, like you look at a guy like Mick Jagger, right? Like, okay. He's not a beautiful man, right? 
but right. many people find him sexy. So, you know, there's certain kinds of machinery, you know, it, it's dirty. Maybe it's, there's something messed up about it. You have to fix it. But at the same time, although it's ugly in deep down, it's sexy because somebody might pay quite a bit for it. Um, so how much of your work is you guys buying <clears throat> stuff to fix up versus just straight resell? That is a good question. And I think it's a bit cyclical. You know, traditionally, we used to buy old mechanical cam multi-spindle screw machines uh, like Wickman's. Wickman's was kind of our specialty. It's a, a six-spindle screw machine, generally six-spindle, made in England. And we could tear it down to nothing and build it back. And Davenport's and Acme's, uh, you know, some of these machines are... 50, 60 years old. And that was a great business for a long time. But now less people can run those machines. And, you know, many of the same customers we've had, they've gone to either newer multi-spindles, CNC multi-spindles like Indexes or Schuttas or ZPS Euroturn machines. And then many of the same people who use screw machines all these years, now they use you know, single spindle lathes and machining centers and a lot of Swiss machines. So we've branched out, but this year, these last two years have been, you know, some of the best business in a long time, um, particularly this year. And we've done quite well, not selling Wickman's. We sold a few Acme's and we've sold a lot of Davenport's, which this really? is a, Davenport's are... You familiar with them? I mean, no, not at all. So I, I would have re like thought at this point that most of your business would have been, you know, citizens, stars, things like that. I, I would have thought that the market for 50, 60 year old machines at this point it's, was dead. It's crazy. I mean, we had a Davenport machine in the 90s. If a Davenport mach machine in the 90s, a, a screw machine in the 80s or 90s is considered you know, if it's a cam machine, it's considered quite young. I was, I'm born in 1980. And I like to say, if I was born before that machine came into existence, it's pretty young in screw machine years. So we had this Davenport in the 1990s, like six years ago or something. And we kept it for like two years. Nobody wanted it. And I was just like, we're never getting a Davenport again. Like this is, <laughs> this is a bad business. Like, right. we need, you know, we need to get out of the stone age. You know, Davenports are great because a Davenport design is the same as it was 85 years ago. It's all, the design hasn't changed much. I mean, if you ask Davenport, they'll tell you, you know, it's a little more precise and now they have this CNC Davenport, but, Overall, the machines are, are very similar. So anyways, all of a sudden, you know, there's reshoring, nearshoring. There's companies that are, you know, putting their facilities in Mexico. And there's Chinese companies, too. We don't love to sell to China, but I mean, we will sometimes, particularly like a machine like this. So you guys sell globally in addition to sourcing globally. <clears throat> Correct. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. 
generally the only place in Asia we sell is China, although we did, we sold this sort of esoteric uh, laser, sort of a laser ablation machine. We sold that to Malaysia this year. But generally, we, we've sold uh, quite a bit to South America. I've got a guy I work with closely in Brazil. And I mean, historically, we've sold to like South Africa, we've sold to, you know, all over the place. But so are you shipping from here to there? Or is it typically you're finding something in the same country or same region and then, you know, reselling it, but keeping it in that same region? Usually, it's coming here, and then we're selling it somewhere else. Okay. Well, then to take a quick detour, have you learned any lessons of like how to send things? Because I know a lot of us deal with rigging and the insane costs that it can have a really good person in your office that can take care of all the trucking and rigging and deal with (laughs) logistics. And my God. Um, Okay. Yeah. For a little while, we were we were buying stuff in Europe, like in one European country and selling to another European country that lasted for a bit. And that was tricky. Uh but usually we're, you know, this is what we're doing. But back to the Davenports, I mean, we've sold probably 100 Davenports this year. Now, That's granted, crazy. I know, it's crazy. Granted, there was one deal in which we sold like 30 at a time. But still. Still, yeah. I, I, I literally did not realize that those were continuing to be sold new or used. You know, I, I had no idea. Yeah, yeah, you people buy them new. I, I just went on their website and like they have the Model B as, you know, a new model and they're like yeah since 1900 the model b has been you know the most profitable it's like geez okay isn't that nuts i mean it's nuts you don't see too many people in europe with them you used to now if they want a cam screw machine they might buy like a tornos or a gildemeister or something but yeah so it's they're they're good for us too because we have somebody uh, we have a freelancer who's really good at working on them, repairing them. And it's a machine that somebody might just, you know, they're just not going to be able to sell them themselves. So to, to broaden this out, you are a used machinery dealer. What can my audience learn about used machinery from you? Like, how can we, I yeah. think we've all dealt with used machinery dealers that kind of strike us like that sleazy car salesman. Ugh. And so, you know, how do we know that we're getting the best deal? How do we know that you have actually vetted things? What lessons have you learned in this trade that really kind of clue you into a good purchase and something that, you know, downstream would be a good purchase for us? And what are big red flags when you're looking at a machine to purchase? Uh, That's a good question. Before I hit that, though, I just want to say that, you know, in addition to that stuff, we do do some CNC stuff. We, we are doing a lot of Swiss right now. You know, right now the market for Swiss is super hot. It's it's crazy if, if you can find something decent. You know, if you can find a 2010 machine, it's going to be pretty coveted. That's why we, we just bought some machines in Japan. But okay, so that is a great question. And the thing is, we're learning all the time about what to do and what not to do. Because we get burned all the time. We, my dad likes to, he sort of brags about it. He he likes to say, you know, we're gamblers. Sometimes we just, we buy stuff and we don't, 
exactly know what we're buying. And he always says, well, we'll learn about it. You, you buy it and you learn about it. Oh, yeah. Some, sometimes you learn badly. So, okay. So let's go through this a couple ways. Maybe we should start with red flags. So when you go to see, uh, see a new machine tool or you have somebody go see it, what are the you know checklists that you go down, maybe the top five things that you are looking for that says like, this is a steaming pile or this is a good buy? Right. Okay. So like with multi-spindle screw machines, we'll do that first because that I probably am more of an authority on. Each machine kind of has its own little Achilles heel. You want to you look at it. So for instance, on a Davenport, the head, the, the carrier, that can have end play in it. So you want to take an indicator or a, a feeler gauge. You want to put, it, put that feeler gauge in there and you don't want it to be three thou or larger. If it, I believe it's three thou. If it is, then you're going to need to like, you know, redo that. And so you basically you just stay away from that. If it's an Acme, an Acme Gridley, that machine really has a big, the big flaw in that machine is its turret. Its carrier has a, uh, a bronze bushing and it wears so the machine can get a lot of play over time. So that you need to put an indicator on it and then lift it with a pry bar and see how much play there is. So if, if it's two thou or less, you're good. It's a good machine. If it's three thou, you know, it's okay. But once you get higher than that, it's not going to be great for resale. Now, people might be making really good parts on it anyways. You know, there, there's all kinds of tricks you can do you know right are these the kind of things that you guys will repair if you see something like that and you can get a good price again so that's one thing that these days that that is something that is really expensive and time consuming to repair because we don't have the ability to grind the stem so we'll have gotcha. to send that out to okay. people who don't really care too much about us and <laughs> are going to want to, who, who will put it way down the queue. And it costs a lot of money. It, it, it costs a lot of money to repair uh, an Acme. Cause then once you put the carrier in, you have to rebore everything to line it up. Now, I mean, and then there's other things, you know, seeing you just looking and knowing what parts are missing and et cetera, you know, but again, you know, if you're a dealer, the machines that you make the most money on are often the dirty ones. And believe it or not, well, I'm, you, you're very mechanical, so you get it. But sometimes the dirty machines are the ones that have been protected the most. Right. <laughs> All that grime on them, you know, the whole turret could be just full of swarf, full of crap. And then you measure that stem and it's awesome. Then Wickman's, there's uh, the flaw in a Wickman is the, the drum. Uh, you, you open this little door and then you put your finger on the drum. And if it's smooth, then you have a good machine. If it's rough, then don't touch it. Don't buy that machine. It's bad. Okay. So that's and then what about CNC Swiss? Because I think that's okay. probably what right, most of the right. I know I'm 
boring okay. people about machines that they're probably not going to buy. I, mean, I think it's very interesting. I mean, the fact that you can determine with like one check the health of the, those kinds of machines is really nice. I mean, it's not something it you is. Do on it's a CNC usually. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like, there could be all kinds of other things wrong with those machines, but that's the the one thing where I'm not that mechanically inclined. I one of the things I've learned though is to find the one thing you're supposed to feel the flaw on something, you know. Right. Okay. So let's go over machines in general. First thing you want to look at, did this machine run water if it's a screw machine? Now, I know like single spindle CNC lathes, though they're, those are made to run water. But Swiss machines, even though they're CNC, they're really not good for running water. It could be kept in good shape and maybe you can buy it and make good parts. But if you ever want to resell that thing, no, you know, a machine that could cost $130,000 used retail Maybe somebody will want to pay you thirty thousand because all the bearings could be messed up. And I've heard too that it's near impossible to go from one to the other. And so, like you know, if somebody has been running it in water, even if it's perfect condition, going to oil or going from oil to water is kind of a no-no because the seals have kind of taken on. Oh, that's interesting. Those oils for you know however many years. So when you want to tell if it's run water or not, you can kind of look inside it and you can see if it looks kind of white and milky that's a telltale sign if it ran water you know a, a lot of this stuff is you have to learn by screwing up like yesterday i we've been fighting this uh citizen m32 we bought it in an auction you know sight unseen we buy stuff sight unseen all the time now because you know we were too lazy to travel or you know, auctions aren't done in person, you know. We saw a video of it running, so that seemed pretty good. We got it, and we tried to run it, and then one of the motors seemed to not be working. And, oh, no. Well, it gets much worse. You know, and one of these motors, this is a 2001 machine, and so one of these motors for an M32, you know, you'd buy this machine. If you brought it, bought it new, it could be up to $500,000. One of these motors... The whole motor knew it would be like $8,000. So what ended up happening was we thought we screwed up the motor. Then this guy we're very close with sold us a motor that he had on an old machine that he was parting out. We cut the motor. It turned out to be filled with water. That was crazy. It was like, oh, a, geez. It was like a pitcher of water. That's crazy. Because the machine had been power washed. So that's another thing. That oh, no. So we dried it out. And we put it in and then there was a short on it. And then, you know, somebody else looked at it and they were like, you know, I don't think the motor was the problem. I think that you had a bad harness. You had a bad cable connecting the motor. Fried it, fried the motor. Then we tried moving this other motor to there. Citizen said to do that, to fix that, to, to test it. And then that motor ended up getting fried. Oh, jeez. So, I don't know what we're going to do. This seems like a parts machine. So anyways, this guy I work with who used to work for Citizen, he told me, he's like, yeah, you got to be really careful if you're buying like a machine like that, like a Citizen M machine that's that old because it's complicated. Well, so that brings up one of the questions that we got from our listeners and so Tim Hickey asked, what's the most reliable and economical machine to enter the Swiss machining market with? You know, if he's buying one and 
I realized as I was reading that question, it kind of brings up the idea of survivorship bias. You know what that is? No, I like that term. So it, it, it came to real popularity. There's a, a meme or whatever that pops around for a long time that like when they were looking at the B-52s coming back, they were trying to figure out where to place more armor. And they were looking only at the ones that came back. And a statistician, I think, said that's the wrong way to look at it because these are the ones who made it back. So anywhere that they're shot means that that's not a vital place. So anywhere that there are not bullet holes is where you need to have armor because the ones that were shot there are the ones that went down. So I am thinking that since you're buying used machine tools, you are probably buying the ones that people don't want and might not be as reliable. I would think that, especially in the Swiss machine market, anything that's really good, they're going to hold on to until it's scrap metal. Right now, in this market, true. However, sometimes you have companies that are just, they're making a lot of money and they like to refresh their inventory. And so they're not selling a machine because it's necessarily on its last legs. They just want to go buy a brand new one and then they've got a 2010 machine that's they've took care of and and it's great to buy okay. so I well, mean, then what is their most reliable one in your opinion that you you know if you see it come up on the market you're like oh i'm snagging that because people will want that yeah yeah that's okay yeah. so you know i think you probably agree that machine tools brands it's sort of like a religion you know you have people who work on citizens, a shop with citizens, a shop with stars, a shop with Tsugamis. And generally, they want to buy the same one that they have because their people know how to use it. They're comfortable with it. They already have tooling for it. I'd say, you know, the best of breed are citizen, Tsugami, star, not necessarily in that order. Tornos is also really good, but it, that's sort of, it sort of has less people. It's kind of its own it's really its own religion. And then Hanwha, which makes, you know, less expensive machines, but a lot of people really like them. Hanwha is the Korean one. Um, oh, I've never heard of them. Oh, yeah. So when people ask me which Swiss machine they should buy, I usually tell them, buy the one that uh, has the best service near you. I, that, I say a similar thing about... CNC mills too. People ask me, you know, I love my brothers and they're like, oh, should I buy a brother? I'm like, how good is the service near you? Like, that's really a giant thing. You could have the best machine tool on the planet. And if you can't get it fixed, it's worthless. So to back it up to kind of the entire economic trends, Adam Demuth asked, historically, has your company seen economic trends play out in the used machinery market, either supply side or demand side? If so, any idea which way things are headed now? Yeah. That's that's a really good question. So right now, and, and you're in the machining racket, so you're, and I think it's pretty similar whether you're doing milling or turning or whatever, still looks pretty good. You know, orders are full. People, the demand is high for parts still. Uh, there's sort of a disconnection, I think, between Wall Street and Main Street and the manufacturing world, I think. It sure seems like it. I you know every so? salesman I talk to, they're like, 
how are you doing? And I say, I'm doing great. I am slammed. And they're like, that's what everybody's saying. I don't understand it. Who Who's saying that they don't understand that? Just, you know, that all the salesmen that I talked to that asked me that question. Like you know, the they, machine they don't tool understand. salespeople? Yeah, machine tool sales, tools, just like, uh, you know, cutting tool salesmen, literally anybody I talk to, they all are asking that question and then repeating my own answer back to me that they're hearing it everywhere, that things are up and everybody's slammed and nobody can keep up. And it seems like such a disconnect with anything you see on the news or out in the world. I know. Everybody's like, oh, I got to contract. I got to, I got to be careful. And every, everybody I talk to, I mean, everybody on the podcast I've had on is just absolutely slammed. It seems like. Yeah. It's interesting. It, It is really interesting. You wonder, you know, if it eventually will trickle down. Um, right. Well, so your business has been around through many historical trends. Have yeah. you guys seen it on your side as a leading indicator or a trailing indicator of kind of the mass recessions, depressions, all of that? That's a great question. I And I've thought about it. First of all, here's one problem. When you ask a, a used machinery dealer to evaluate the year or and the economy like we don't make tons of deals. We're not selling like zillions of parts. You know, we have a month where we sell, have three big deals. And all of a sudden it seems like obviously the economy is amazing. But something's different if you're selling a hundred Davenports, you know, that's it. That seems to me, at least on the outside, like that is unheard of. Yeah, it's, it is pretty crazy. But, you know, we'll, we'll work with machines that are a couple hundred thousand dollars sometimes versus just machines that, you know, a Davenport, which we might sell for $30,000, you know, it's, right, it's right. diverse. Well, on a more personal note, uh, Firmworks asked, how do you deal with the struggles of working with family? Well, yeah, it's complicated working with family. I'm sure. You know, when my uncle was here there was more wrinkles in it, you know, kind of the more people in it, the more interesting things can get. Working just with my dad, I I think he's brilliant. I think that we work really well together. You know, I he's been my mentor. I learned from him. He says that I he learns from me. We think a, the same a lot, but you know, he is coming from a different standpoint also just the guy who writes the checks obviously he's gonna have a different a different way of looking at it it's you know it's funny how he's 78 i'm 42 and sometimes he's the one that's more bold as far as uh (laughs) yeah let's just go buy this yeah there's these five machines in japan and just just buy it and we'll worry about it when it gets here We'll, we'll figure it out versus some people are more everything's got to be perfect if they're going to buy it. And, you know, I think that there's a good happy medium. Uh, I think that we share some different, we have some different skill sets. I think we, we just, we work really well together and I could see how other people wouldn't work well with their parents. Have you found any good ways of dealing with disagreements? Because, you know, like when you're dealing with a boss, that's not your father or not, someone related to you, it's kind of easier to remain professional, I would imagine. So are there any ways that you guys have found to work together to avoid kind of slipping into those familial roles when you're disagreeing? You know, 
I, I, you're going to f- think I'm full of crap, but we've, we really are able to like once in a while he'll be like, no, we're doing this. And I'll just be like, all right, you know, but it's never like been like idiot. Like can't believe he's doing that. And then things build up. And I mean, we really keep things good where we sure we, we might disagree on a decision and, but eventually one of us just is like, all right, well, we'll do that. So that's great though. I mean, it sounds like you guys start from a base of like mutual trust and respect and like that kind of makes things yeah flow easier. I mean, the problem, you know, one thing and I haven't really mentioned this in any interviews as great as we get along. I don't know how other people maybe may receive that. Like, I don't know. I'm sure there's certain feelings about it. Like he's entitled or of course he's going to agree with him. I, you know, I'm projecting what people may think that said when some people are like, well, what do you think of this? I can be sort of like the spokesperson to go, Hey, what about this? And he goes, Oh yeah, why not? (laughs) Obviously you're, you're seen a certain way by your coworkers. You know, you're not exactly their coworker, like a normal coworker. I don't own the company, so so I'm not their boss. You know, it puts me in a sort of interesting gray area. But and, you, you clearly work in the business too, and and it's a long-standing family business. It's not like, you know, you are the first fa- familial hire that you guys have ever had. I mean, this is a long-standing family business, so they they kind of knew how how the lay of the land was when they hired on. You know, and they found out the backstory of the company. Yeah, that's true. Though some people here have been here before I came on. But I mean, then it was still your dad and his father. And, you know, it's... it's That's true. That's true. But their dynamic is different than our dynamic. And so, yeah, you have a good point. Well, so you kind of mentioned that you've been going on podcasts. For other, Firmworks' other question was, how does it feel to be on the other side of the mic? Because you're so used to interviewing people. I think it's fun. I always have to have some kind of project hanging over my head. And the last thing I did, I I went a whole year meeting at least one new person every day and then documenting it. And I was, was hoping to make uh, like a book and a podcast out of it. I, I had a selfie with most of them too. And, and oh, that's cool. Website and, but usually, you know, it was me sort of being on the passive side, letting people talk and that, and it's good. It's interesting, you know, like I'll talk to people on the phone and I'd be taking notes and <laughs> it's amazing how much people enjoy being listened to. Uh, I love meeting people and I love, the, I love doing the podcasts, but it's fun to get to put more of myself in it as well. I want to put my own personality a little bit into the podcast. So I hate to just be totally passive and I think I want to, I don't know, part of me wants to show people my voice a little bit but that said you know you can't be a windbag you can't (laughs) let it i just we just released a podcast today episode and i thought it was really good it was with this woman who's a recruiter name is ann wyatt and we got in this pretty interesting discussion about interviews job interviews and 
I've done a lot of reading and people have said, you know, job interviews are rather overrated. And she differed with me on that. And we ended up talking probably 10, 12 minutes about this and doing role playing. And I mean, the interview was pretty long and I do cut my interviews a little bit. And then I listened to it and I was just like, look, you're just, you're being self-indulgent a little bit. And once in a while, my dad and I will host, we'll, we'll just make a, an episode that's just ourselves, just talking to one another. Have you ever done an episode? Well, you used to have a partner. Did you guys do episodes where it was just you two or did you always interview somebody? Yeah, so we did every other week was either him and I or him and I and a guest. Nice. And what did you think people were the most receptive to? I, I Honestly, what I've learned about having an audience is that there's. it seems like it's always split down the middle. Like, like when we <laughs> talked about uh, length. Like I I've know. I couldn't people, believe what you told me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so for for the listeners, when Noah and I talked about the the podcast beforehand, we had a call uh, a week or so ago. He edits his down to keep them short and concise. And I was telling you that you know if I do under an hour, people are like, "Well, where's the rest of it?" Well, you have and, different expectations. People have 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 become accustomed to your podcast, so they're you know right. And and I think that that it went that way too with the guest versus just us. And like, we had some people who were like, Oh man, I love the guest interviews, but like the shop ones are meh. And then I had some people that were like, man, I, I, the guest interviews are whatever, but like, I really like hearing both of you guys talk about it. And so how long were the ones that you guys did? About an hour, hour and a half, something like that. Oh, the one you talked amongst yourself was an yeah. hour and a half. Yeah, about that. <laughs> That's good for you though. Cause I particularly, I mean, I do every other week now generally. And, uh, before I became a father seven months ago, I was, I tried Congrats. to do, thank you. I tried to do every week. Yeah, maybe I'd do five of seven weeks or something. And it was a real grind, as you know. And it was even harder because I really wanted to take the episodes down. People were complaining. I send it out with our blog newsletter, and a lot of the people are older. And that may have influenced me too. And they're like, I don't have time to listen to this. You know, you have to keep in mind that there are podcast listeners and they're not podcast listeners. I guess they're not going to listen either way. Right. Well, but that's I, why you do a great job of putting out clips on LinkedIn and stuff of like very important parts of the conversation. I'm trying, but l looking at my numbers, I feel like the ones that are half hour, 35 minutes often do the best. And and I also feel like if I'm trying a new show, I may be intimidated by the ones that are the longest. And I'll probably go down the list and be like, this one's a half hour. Oh, let's do let's this one. with that one. Yeah. Okay. Hey, yeah. You, you told me that on the phone call and that made sense to me. And it actually explains, I think the first or the second episode is one of the highest listened. It's not the, the highest, but it is like in the top five, I think. And so it probably isn't that amazing. Sense. That was with us too. The first episode got like a ton. Yeah. Well, I, I think a lot of people are podcast completists. And so they're like, I'll listen to the first one. And if I like it, I'll keep going and I'll listen to them all. Otherwise, I'm just not going to do it. Like I know a lot of people who listen to the full breadth of a podcast uh -huh. and don't skip anything. And so, you know, they probably started the first one and they're like, okay, well, 
I like that. Let's keep going. Or they're like, well, that was it. Thanks. <laughs> really? I'm not I, I like think that. So. I, I'm, not, I'm not either. But uh, I, maybe I would, it's because you it. and I subscribe to so many podcasts that we have to just be like, all right, this one's really speaking to me. This one maybe less so. Right. Do you, yeah. I, um, I mean, I, I know I've had episodes that I'm like, this is good, but I have better, you know. Usually it has to do with my performance more than anything. I'm like, oh, wow, I was really sleepy that night. Or like, oh, I was really out of it that day and, and was not a good host. Really? Oh, yeah. I can definitely tell. Like, I'll listen back. And like people, I, I rarely have people reach out and say, you did a bad job or something along those lines. But I'll listen back to the edit and be like, oof, I, I, I should have got three hours more sleep that night or something. Really, Dylan? I, I don't think people are... I think people probably aren't paying... Uh, I mean, maybe I don't. I think it's more you know, and maybe it's yeah. They're not going to criticize you. You know yourself, maybe. Yeah, maybe I didn't bring out what I could have in this person. I, I could see how you you might think that. Yeah, I'm always going to be my harshest critic. I mean, I, I have now listened to 170 episodes almost of myself talk. This and is so my. Like, th- I just came out with 170 today myself. Oh, really? Yeah, you're 169, so I'm one behind you. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting to to analyze it. I was I'm going to be on somebody else's podcast. I was just talking to them, and they were like, "Yeah, I listened to a few of. I listened to the third one, and I was like, the third one. Don't listen to that one. I was just starting. Like, <laughs> that's what prof- I always tell people too. I'm like, no, no, I'm so much better in the later episodes. You don't, and you don't do pre-interviews. No, no, I don't. I but besides so the I, one with me. Besides the one with you. And so I, I was realizing, I was thinking about this last night, and I think the reason I don't is I find the joy of discovery far outweighs the possible awkwardness an interview can have. Yeah, and you're less worried about length. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, so you were mentioning that you're going to be on a podcast. Our next segment is Shop News and New Things. Where can people look for you next? And then also, what else is new in your life? Well, I mean, you don't need to go to these other podcasts. You should just go to mine, Swarfcast. <laughs> of course. Uh, but I talked to this guy yesterday. He is very interesting. Uh, his podcast is called like Mindful Manufacturing. Have you ever heard of him? I haven't. No, I'll have to check it out. Manufacturing Mindfulness? I don't know. If I can find it, I'll, I'll put it in the show description for people. I, I like, uh, as far as I'm concerned, there's no competition in this space. There is just more to listen to. I think that you're totally right, and I think that I've had the wrong i I might have had a, the wrong attitude for a little while, like sort of jealousy, or you know, like looking at iTunes and or Apple Podcasts and going. They have a hundred subscribers, a hundred ratings, and I listen to theirs and their production quality isn't that good. And <laughs> like, how dare they? And, you know, I've really changed. I've, I've grown up a little and realized, you know, these people are my allies and friends and don't be such a jerk. Like, yeah, well, it, it's not a zero sum game. I mean, there's what, 168 hours in a week. Like, there's not enough machining podcasts or manufacturing podcasts to fill up even all the waking hours. And I suppose. I think that there, I think as far as podcasts goes, there are more people who listen to many podcasts than just one podcast. Like, I don't think that people are like, 
this is my podcast and I some can people make no with time. mine some people with mine tell me I was the I'm the only one that they listen to really but, but maybe it's that I was sort of the gateway and then they discover other ones after me I don't know I I still think I I'm caught in this terrible attitude of uh well how many machining podcasts are they going to listen to they're they're either going to listen to Dylan's podcast or my podcast you know <laughs> I don't want I don't want to lose any ears to him you know but Yes, no, like, I, I talked to so many people who are like, you know, every time a new machining podcast comes out, they're commenting on the, the first post. and They're like, yes, more content. Like, I find it super comforting. Like, I put on a lot of friends podcasts. Like, I, I one of my a couple of my friends are on carbide content, it's called and it's a knife making machining podcast. And like the conversations they have, I just have playing while I'm working. And it's like, kind of like having friends in the shop, you know, like, yes, I can't. I can't talk back but it's like having friends in the shop and like for a while before my business partner came on full-time i was alone in the shop and so like my podcast friends were the only po- you know friends oh, that i had in the shop totally well that's for all kinds of podcasts yeah you feel like you know them and you feel like they're sort of your sort of your friends yeah, yeah. it's yeah so it, it's because you're I, hearing I, I a think, conversation it's almost like you know you're part of this conversation Oh, yeah. Well, that brings me to the last question I ask every guest every week, which is what have you been researching this week? And it doesn't have to be machining related or manufacturing related. It's just what's been popping up in your browser. It's always cool to see what other people in the industry are looking up. Good question, because I have sort of a similar one with my podcast. This question may be better than mine, though, because I always ask, uh, you know, what's something you've learned recently? Oh, I like that, too. This is a little easier, I think, because <laughs> most, so many people, I think it's kind of sad. And they just go, no, I haven't really learned anything recently. And then I, I try to jog their memory. Like I write in a diary every night and I also, I keep a list of one thing I've learned that day. I try to, you know, you learn a ton of things every day, particularly if you listen to a lot of podcasts. So I tried to alter my question of, it was like, what have you learned or What's something that you've watched or you've read recently that, you know, had a had an emotional effect on you or whatever? Okay, so what have I researched? Uh, one thing, work-related, you know, as I said, we bought these machines in Japan, a bunch of citizens and a wire EDM, and I kept looking around for other machines in Japan, seeing what was available. So that was one thing I was, and I, and I, I kept asking people, you know, can we can we change the units into inches from metric? And how difficult is it to change the language? And and then yesterday, I, we bought this wire EDM as well. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me. It was like, I mean, I think it's going to work this Fanuc RoboCut wire EDM. But we never talked to Fanuc. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Well, we talked to a few other people, dealers who thought it was an okay idea. So I started like looking up specs for that. And then... Well, you mentioned you listen to a lot of podcasts. Is yeah. Is something you've look... been listening to a lot of recently that, you know, yeah. shares a lot of information or you find interesting? Sure. That's why I just started opening up my podcast app. There's this podcast called uh, Against the Odds, which is like about these crises where... Like the first one was about uh, the boys that were trapped in the cave in Thailand and they, you know, did the whole process of whatever. And now 
I'm listening to this one about this submarine in 1939. The Army had created or the Navy had created like their two like new technological submarines, like something totally different than they had ever done before. And one of them was doing a practice dive and something goes wrong on the practice dive and it's like trapped underwater and they have, you know, like a couple hours before they just die of suffocation. And so this is about the rescue of it. Uh, 1939, them trying to rescue uh, people out of a submarine that's on the bottom of the ocean. And that oh, was wow. pretty fun. That's really cool. It, I can give you the name of the episode. So it's Against the Odds. It's called Submarine Rescue, The Race to Save Squalus. Okay. How uh, oh, cool. It's a, it's fun. It's, you know, and this, this uh, company that does it, Wondery, they have, it's, it's just really good. Like, it's sort of like you're listening to a play and it's almost like voices and, and there's music and it's just really well produced, you know, it's, it's, it's like you're listening to a real episode of something, something entertaining. That's awesome. I'll check it out. Not just a bunch of talking heads like me. You know? <laughs> Well, Noah, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. It's been great. Where can people find you again if they want to listen to your podcast or read read about you? Yeah. Well, first, if you need an, a used machine uh, of of any sort, particularly turning equipment, go to graphpinkert.com. G-R-A-F-F is in Frank. P-I-N-K-E-R-T. If you want to read our blogs, which we send out every week, including the podcast, that's at Today's Machining World. Dot com, And then uh, if you want to listen to the podcast, and I hope some people will try it out from this, uh, it's called Swarfcast. So it's S-W-A-R-F and then C-A-S-T. And you knew what Swarf was, right? Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. like the chips and the crap that's inside the belly of the machine. Yeah, exactly. No, um, I, I think people should have no problem finding that if they're listening to this podcast. Thank you, Dylan. This was so much fun. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for letting me yap and uh, getting to know me. I, I think you're a really good interviewer. So thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And, and again, I really appreciate your time. Thanks to all the Patreon members who make this show possible. And I will be back next week.